Well, thank you, Matt. Yes, I'm not Chuck, in case you noticed that. There's a few differences there. He is actually in Miami this morning, suffering for Jesus at an Acts 29 conference. He sends his hellos. He texted me this morning, wanted to let you know he missed you, and to remind you of how privileged you are to live in a humidity-free zone. So he is suffering for Jesus in that regard. As many of you know, uh, I'm the new guy in town. And while I've been looking for my apartment, I've had the great privilege of staying with David and Connie Wall. They've been so gracious towards me. And one of the great advantages of staying with the Walls is you get to hear very, very serious and deeply theological truths echoing throughout the house. Um, I heard one of those uh, this week, and it went like this. A DEA agent stopped at a ranch in Texas and talked to an old rancher. He told the rancher, I need to inspect your ranch for illegally grown drugs. The rancher said, okay, but don't go into that field over there. As he pointed out the location, the DEA agent verbally exploded and said, look, mister, I have the authority of the federal government with me. Reaching into his back pockets, the officer removed his badge and proudly displayed it to the rancher. See this badge? This badge means I can go wherever I want on any land, no questions asked. Do you understand, old man? The rancher kindly nodded, apologized, and went about his chores. Moments later, the rancher heard loud screams. He looked up and saw the DEA agent running for his life, being chased by the rancher's big Santa Gertrudis bull. With every step, the bull was gaining ground on the officer, and it was likely that he'd be sure gored before he reached safety. The officer was clearly terrified. The old rancher threw down his tools, ran as fast as he could to the fence, and yelled at the top of his lungs, "'Your badge! Show him your badge!' So these are the types of truths I get staying with the walls. But this silly little story hits on the key question in our text today. What does real access and real authority look like, and what is just a shadow? The rancher had a type of access. He did have some authority, but it it wasn't grounded in who he was. It was was derived. It was not intrinsic. And so when it came down to it, he really had no real authority. Today we come to the middle of the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, and it isn't just the center of the book locationally, which it is, but it's also the center of this amazing picture that the author to the Hebrews has been painting for us. If you have a musical background, you'll probably be familiar with the idea of crescendo, right? Crescendo is when the music continually builds and they add some more instruments and it progressively gets louder and louder and louder. So if the book of Hebrews is a song, Chapters 1 through 6 thus far have been the crescendo for it. Throughout the book so far, he has been giving us a steady crescendo of Jesus' superiority, his manifold superiority. Um, In chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, we see that Jesus is superior to all creation by virtue of the fact that he himself created everything and is continually upholding everything. Next, he argues that Jesus is superior to the angels. In chapter 3, we see how Jesus is even superior to Moses. And to the Hebrews, Moses would have been the hero of, of the Old Covenant. For them, it wouldn't have been known as the Old Covenant. It would have been their system. And so here comes the writer of Hebrews saying that Jesus is superior to Moses. In chapter 4, we see that Jesus is superior to Joshua. Joshua was the one who actually led the people of Israel into the Promised Land. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying Jesus is actually superior to Joshua in that he can give us an eternal Sabbath, a a true rest. 
And today we reach Jesus' final superiority. The crescendo has met its end. The very heart of the Jewish system would have been the idea of priesthood. How do we get to God? And so today we see that Jesus is our superior high priest. There could have been no greater category that the Jews would have looked to to see um, of importance, of superiority. And so to say that Jesus is our superior high priest is to make the most amazing claim that would have been possible. It can be difficult for the weight of this concept to land on us, especially as Protestants, uh, because we are so far removed from the idea of priesthood. So before we dive into the text today, we kind of need to do some some soil work to um, figure out what is the idea of priesthood before we can compare Jesus' priesthood with somebody else. So why the priesthood? Why did God establish this system? Well, there's many answers to this question, but there's one simple answer that I want to give to us today. God created the priesthood to deal with the biggest problem that every single one of us faces. Let me say that again. God created the priesthood to deal with the biggest problem that every single one of us faces. And this is the problem that we have, all of us. God is perfectly and gloriously holy, and we are rebels that have been corrupted by sin. How can we, helpless and weak as we are, ever hope to be put back into relationship with God? How are we ever going to get back home? So this is the problem every single one of us faces, not who are we going to marry, not where are we going to go to school, not who's going to win the World Cup. I'm moving tomorrow um, outside of the walls, and so I've been looking at uh, some different furniture, and it seems like the biggest problem in my life right now is figuring out what I'm going to put in my apartment. That's not my biggest problem, ultimately. My biggest problem is what will I do when I stand before God, because I'm going to stand before God. And as an aside, this is also why it's so, so tragic and even illogical when the Bible is often reduced to just a list of do's and don'ts, kind of behavior modification. The big idea of the Bible is not behavior modification. It's not a long list of things we should or shouldn't do. The big idea of the Bible is it's about God's story of redeeming all things that have been broken by sin through which he will receive ultimate glory, and his people will receive fullness of joy. This is the overarching theme of the Bible. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. But another challenge that we face in understanding today's text is that in order to understand priesthood, we have to have a biblical understanding of God's holiness. To say it another way, we need to agree with what God has to say about who God is. Let me say that again. We need to agree with God about what God says about God in order to understand the idea of the priesthood. In our society, we have been so utterly desensitized to the reality of God's holiness. God has been so tamed and domesticated that we need to steep our minds afresh in what God has to say about God. And so I want to do that for us really quick. I'm going to look to one text in the Old Testament and then one text in the New Testament. I want to um, put... Fill that word holy in your mind with with some Bible in it. So when we hear the word holy, like we sang earlier today, that will have some teeth to it. So let's look first to Isaiah 6. Uh, In Isaiah 6, we we get a glimpse of a vision that the prophet Isaiah had. 6, starting in verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Total authority. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. 
And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. So he, we here we get this amazing picture. Even the unfallen angels in the presence of the holy God hide their face and hide their feet. They probably hide their feet. There's some speculation about this, but because of their creatureliness. And so even though they aren't stained by sin, in the presence of the holy, they shield their face and their feet. And then Isaiah, if there ever was a man who had clean lips, it was Isaiah. But what was his first response when he sees a vision of the holiness of God? He says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. You see how traumatic the holiness of God was to the prophet of God when he had a glimpse of his actual holiness sitting in his throne. Now let's jump to the New Testament. I'll read from Luke 5. So here we have the story where Jesus is teaching one of many times that, that he does um, on the Sea of Galilee. And it says, um, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, so he's in Simon's boat, put out into the deep and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boats so that they began to sink. You get this picture? They had toiled all night long. They hadn't caught anything. At Jesus' words, Peter puts out his nets, and they get a catch so large that the boats start to sink. Now look what Peter says. When Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Isn't that a bizarre response? This situation had nothing to do with Peter's moral integrity. But the moment he caught a glimpse of the holy Jesus in his sovereign power, his first response was to fall down at Jesus' knees and say, Depart from me, because I am a sinful man. These vignettes from Scripture show us how traumatic holiness is to fallen humanity. We need someone who could go before us and atone for our sins so that we would be able to enter the presence of the holy God. So the priesthood was God's gracious way of making provision for us so that we could have a way back into relationship with him. The priesthood was God's gracious way of making provision for us so that we could have a way back into relationship with him. The writer of Hebrews gives us a helpful definition of priesthood in 5.1. He says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And that's exactly what we see all throughout the Old Testament. Year by year, priests would make sacrifices for the people so that they could remain in continual relationship with the Holy God. And I realize this concept can be jarring, especially seeing as how we are steeped in this culture of pop psychology and self-esteem and self-help and kind of new age spirituality, which is all about self-actualization. You need look no farther than your coffee cup this morning to see what I'm talking about. Even when we get a cup of coffee now, we get a quote with this kind of 
pithy, half-baked spirituality, which is all about self-actualization. The only courage you need is the courage to live the life that you want. I'd, I'd like to submit that that's not all we need. We need more than some self-conjuring of courage to be all that we can be. It's hard to imagine why in the world we would ever need a priest when we swim in the ocean of this type of language, when God isn't all that holy, when he's kind of just a vague, helpful spirit, and we're not all that bad, sin isn't all that big of a deal, the idea of priesthood can be totally foreign to us. And that's why we need to fill these categories with Bible so they have meaning for us today. The reality is, no matter how much we push back against this idea Across all cultures and all civilizations, there has always been this idea of priesthood, even outside of Judaism. The common themes are, one, that we have a sin problem, even though it may take a different name, that we need to deal with and we know is there. And number two, blood must be shed to make this right. This is even the foundation of our legal system, right? Even if you commit involuntary manslaughter with your car accidentally and you're sorry for it, our legal system demands you still have to pay, even if you didn't mean to. Um, when something wrong occurs, even if it isn't even morally wrong, it would be unjust, even in our secular society, for that not to be made right. This is even the foundation. We see it everywhere. We can't get outside of it. And the right of Hebrews once again helps us out in 922 when he distills this concept, saying, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So no matter how nice the idea of self-actualization and self-help sounds, it doesn't actually deal with reality. We all know deep down when the silence falls that there is no amount of looking inward that can fix our greatest problems. We desperately need someone to intercede on our behalf. We need a priest. With this understanding in place, we can now turn to our text today. The writer is contrasting the old priesthood with Jesus' priesthood. And he uses this peculiar figure named Melchizedek to explain how Jesus is superior. Now Melchizedek shows up only twice in the Old Testament, once in Genesis 14 and once by way of prophecy in Psalms 110.4. So let's read the Genesis text to get the background that we have from the Bible on who this Melchizedek is. This is Genesis 14, starting in verse 17. After his, that is Abram's, return from the defeat of Shedrlamor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet with him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, there's our man, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him, he blessed Abram, who was to become Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This is all we get by way of background on Melchizedek. We know that he is a priest, and that Abraham, once again, who would become, or Abram, who would become Abraham, the father of Israel, saw it fitting to seek a blessing from this bizarre figure. He saw it fitting, the great Abraham, to seek a blessing, and not only that, but to tithe to Melchizedek. 
The amazing thing about our text today, because this can be kind of perplexing, is that the Holy Spirit, through the writer of Hebrews, tells us exactly what's going on here, actually. He is our commentary for this text. He tells us that Melchizedek, the priesthood of Melchizedek, is actually a type of Christ. It's an amazing insight. So, for the rest of our time together, I want to work on answering two questions. I want to ask two big questions, and then I want to get our hands in the text to see if we can't find the answers. So the first question is, why did the old priesthood need to be replaced? Why did the old priesthood need to be replaced? Number one, the old priesthood could not make us perfect. Let's look at verses 11 through 12. They say this, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law. This text makes it clear that we need to be perfect before God. That's, that's what he's saying. If perfection could have been attained, why the new priesthood? And so to say it another way, we need to be perfect, and that couldn't do it. And so it needed to be replaced. And we see several texts um, throughout, the, throughout the Bible who, which reinforce this idea. Um, in 1 Peter 1.16, he's actually quoting Leviticus. But he says, you shall be holy, for I am holy, speaking of God. And Jesus himself in Matthew 5.48 says, you therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then finally, in Isaiah 35.8, Isaiah is giving us a picture of the road to Zion, Zion being our final resting place for the people of God, our final, I shouldn't even say resting place because that sounds kind of morbid, the final destination for the people of God. He says this, A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. I don't know about you, but I don't feel like on my own um, I'm going to be able to pass over that way. And if that's the way to Zion, I need something that can make me perfect. Um, And the old priesthood could not do that. And so we see that the old priesthood was just a shadow. We are eternal souls, and we need an eternal and secure, perfect holiness. The second reason is the priests themselves under the old system were sinful and needed to be forgiven. The priests themselves were sinful and needed to be forgiven. Let's look at verses 27 through 28. And he, that is Jesus, has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as a high priest. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. Because the priests themselves were sinful, there is no way that this priesthood could provide an eternal provision for the people of God. They were like the DEA officer from the story earlier. They had a type of access to God. But it was granted to them through lineage. It was borrowed and temporal. It wasn't eternal and intrinsic, which is what we need. Eternal provision is what we all most desperately need. Number three, it was connected to the old law, which was designed to reveal our sin, not cure it. The old priesthood was connected to the old law, which was designed designed to reveal our sin and not to cure it. The law that was given in the Old Testament revealed God's holy character, which showed us how sinful we really are. Trust me, I don't like these words as much, or any of you probably do, but it's true. 
Listen to the words of Paul in Romans 7 and then in Galatians 3. He said, seven, starting in verse 7, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. This very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. You see what Paul is saying? The law was put up before us not to cure our sin, but to show us how sinful we are. Paul is saying if it wasn't for the law, I would have I would have been fine. I would have had no idea what it was to covet. But once the law said, don't covet, I realized I'm filled with covetousness. This is what the law was designed to do. And then Galatians 3, starting in verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, and then catch this here, the law was our guardian until Christ came. The law was our guardian until Christ came. Paul makes it crystal clear. The law, God's perfect and holy standard, was designed to reveal to us the depths of our sin problem. It was designed to awaken us to reality. God refused to allow us to live forever in a spiritual stupor, so he put a perfect and holy mirror in front of our faces so that we could clearly see the state of our souls. And in this way, the law was pure grace. God refused to be a disinterested bystander and just let us to go on our own path, but rather he gave us the law and gave us an example of his perfect character so that we could see what true holiness looked like and then see how impossible it was for us to hold up to that. So the old priesthood can be seen, as it were, as a temporary provision to make temporary atonement while we were under the guardianship of the law. And number four, the fourth reason why the old priesthood had to be replaced a new priesthood was prophesied. A new priesthood was prophesied. Finally, the old priesthood had to be replaced because a new priesthood was prophesied. Listen to what the Holy Spirit says in Psalm 110, verse 4. We believe that the Holy Spirit wrote the entire Bible, and so he wrote these words as well. We'll go to verse 1, then verse 4. The Lord, that is Yahweh, said to my Lord, which is interesting language, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. And then verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So don't miss that connection in verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, that should raise a flag for us. What's he speaking of here? And then to this Lord, he says, you are a priest forever after this new order of priesthood, after the priesthood of Melchizedek. Even here we see that a thousand years before Jesus ever walked the earth, God was already promising a new priest who would come and provide that eternal priesthood that we all need so desperately. So we have seen four reasons why the old priesthood need to be replaced. We need to be perfect, but it couldn't perfect us. The priests were sinful, so their sacrifices were inherently flawed. It was connected to the old law, which was designed to reveal our sin not to cure it. And finally, the Holy Spirit prophesied there would be a new priest. So now let's look at our second big question of today. In this way, being after the order of Melchizedek, how is Jesus our superior high priest? How is Jesus a superior high priest? Number one, 
Jesus' priesthood is universal. Let's look at verse 3. He, that is Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Before Christ, the promise of salvation belonged to Israel. They were God's chosen people. But here, the writer of Hebrews explains how Melchizedek's priesthood, it didn't come through his lineage. The Bible gives us no genealogy for Melchizedek. So in that way, Jesus being after his order shows us that Jesus isn't constrained to a specific people, to a specific genealogy. Having no genealogy, this type of priesthood transcends all cultures and all races. It's a new order. It's not just for Israel now. Before, um, when Christ cried, it is finished from the cross, Matthew 27 tells us that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So on the cross, Jesus cries, it is finished, and the curtain separating the Holy of Holies, which is the place that the Old Testament priesthoods would go into, it was torn, and so now there was full access between God and all of humanity. In this way, we can see what Jesus accomplished on the cross as smashing the dam that was holding back God's grace. And so when that dam broke, the full ocean of God's grace was displayed over all the world. It is the greatest truth in all the world. As Paul puts it in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek now. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one now in Christ Jesus. Also, Jesus himself explains that he is inaugurating an expansive and worldwide kingdom in John ten sixteen. Check out these words of Christ himself. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will now be one flock and one shepherd. The ground is completely level at the foot of the cross. This was absolutely paradigm-shattering for the Hebrews who would have received this word. Jesus' priesthood is now universal since it is after the order of Melchizedek. And that means the offer of eternal salvation is presented to every person in this chapel this morning. That's good news. Number two, Jesus' priesthood is righteous. Jesus' priesthood is righteous. Let's look at the beginning of verse 2 in this morning's text. Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Speaking of Melchizedek, he says he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Unlike all the other priests, Jesus' access as a priest is not derived from lineage, but it is intrinsic to who he is. He is not just worthy in title, but he is the righteous one. This is a huge difference between the entire old priesthood and the priesthood of Jesus. He is king of righteousness, not by lineage, because the old priests, as we see, were sinful and weak. He is by his very name king of righteousness. Let's look at 1 John 2, 1 and 2. John here gives us an incredible distillation of this truth. He says, My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, check out how awesome this is. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Do you know what that word propitiation means? Big Bible word. It means wrath remover. Jesus Christ is the wrath remover for us. 
Jesus' blood is so pure and righteous that he, in that one horrific and glorious act, paid for every sin of every person who had looked upon him for salvation. And verse 27 in, t- t- in today's text sums this up perfectly. It says, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifice daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. And then catch this. Since he, being Jesus, did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus did this once for all when he offered up himself. So when he said, it is finished, that's exactly what it's talking about here. No more sacrifices were needed because he was perfectly righteous. But not only did he just pay for our sins, being the perfectly righteous one, he also transfers his righteousness to us. This is the concept that Pastor Chuck unpacked a couple weeks ago of um, double imputation, where Jesus gets our wrath, becomes our propitiation, and then imputes his righteousness to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 explains this, saying, For our sake he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. No other priest could ever be our perfect wrath remover and righteousness giver. That is what Jesus' righteous priesthood has now accomplished for us. Number three, Jesus' priesthood is peaceful. Now let's look at the rest of verse 2. It says he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. The old priesthood can never secure an abiding peace for us because of some of the reasons we've already looked at. It couldn't make us perfect. The priests priests themselves were sinful, and day by day and year by year, they had to reenact this bloody spectacle of animal sacrifice. It wasn't a peaceful priesthood. It was never secure. But Jesus Christ, through his perfect sacrifice, has brought us permanent peace with God. He has answered our biggest problem. And Ephesians 2 shines amazing light onto this, starting verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you um, once were far off, had been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then don't miss this. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Do you realize that there was once a wall of hostility between you and God? There was once a wall between me and God of hostility. Romans 8 tells us that um, in our minds, we were once hostile towards God. You need to know this morning that if you are in Christ, you are at complete peace with God. You can rest in that. Even if you feel like you're in a storm this morning, seek shelter in Jesus and you'll find peace there. The peace that Jesus gives is not temporal or a moment of of euphoria, but rather it is a deep and strong assurance of heart that he will always live to fight for you. There is no greater source of peace than knowing that Jesus Christ always has your back. Listen to these words of Jesus himself in John 14. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Jesus' priesthood is a peaceful priesthood. He has secured a perfect peace for you between you and God this morning. That is good news this morning. And finally, number four, Jesus' priesthood is eternal. We see this in verses 3 and then 23 through 25. 
He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who would draw near to God through him. And then maybe the sweetest line in the entire Bible, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus always lives to make intercession for you if you are under his priesthood. That's what the text says. Even right now, this morning, if you are in Christ, Jesus is living to make intercession for you. One of the many things that he does in his priestly office. Do you know this morning that if you are a Christian, Jesus is praying for you? It's an amazing truth. You need to know that. This is what the text says. The question is, is he your high priest? Is he your high priest? Friend, this morning, come to Jesus. You will find no better answer for your biggest problem. I have found no greater answer for my biggest problem, namely, what am I going to do when I see God? And what am I going to do for the rest of my life with all of my stuff? His priesthood is universal. Therefore, everyone sitting here today is invited. His priesthood is righteous. Did anyone else bring in any shame this morning? Any sin? I brought my fair share in. I know it may feel like a big problem, but it's no problem for Jesus. He will wipe it away and clothe you in his righteousness. He has already borne your shame this morning. His priesthood is peaceful. Do you live with anxiety and fear? You don't have to. Jesus has already dealt with your biggest problem. Jesus will give you his peace this morning that is not like the world's peace. If you're in a storm even this morning, it doesn't mean that he will immediately take you out of it, but it does mean that he will come up and sit beside you and put his arm around you, pray for you, and, and see you safely to shore. And finally, Jesus' priesthood is eternal. Anyone here getting older? Scared of dying? You don't have to be. Jesus will be your high priest for all of eternity so that you can live forever in the glorious presence of God. It's the truth. He will clothe you in his um, white garments and you will reign with King Jesus. You know what the Bible says that we will reign with Jesus? Do you ever think about that? That's the promise and we need a high priest to make that happen. He can be your high priest forever if you would come to him this morning. So we have dealt with some deep truths today. And if my words have been uh, cumbersome or, or clumsy, I thought that a, a picture might be helpful for us. So many of you know that I'm a photographer. Um, this is a picture I actually took en route from Florida last month when I was driving out from Florida to be here with you guys. Um, this is a picture of the Milky Way. This was in Death Valley. And I've shown it to some people, and, and they've said it's a good photo. They think I'm a good photographer. That's encouraging. Um, but do you know what's greater than this picture of the Milky Way? Any guesses? The Milky Way is greater than this picture of the Milky Way. So in this way, the old priesthood was just a picture of Jesus. In the same way that a picture of the Milky Way is nothing in comparison to the actual Milky Way. Uh, this picture would be nothing if it wasn't for the thing itself. And so in that way, 
Jesus is our ultimate reality. The old priesthood was just a picture. We being on this side of the cross are in such a privileged state. And we have the high priest for us now. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as I um, speak on these things, I, I am reminded of Paul's words, uh, who is sufficient for these things. Um, you are sufficient for these things, Lord. And so, Jesus, I even take you up on your offer now to intercede for me, for, me, for all of us here. Holy Spirit, I even pray right now that you would go, you would protect the word that has been spoken this morning. We don't want to be unaware that Jesus warned us that the enemy will seek to steal the word from us. That's what he said. And so as we leave this morning and we get bombarded by the realities of life, won't your Holy Spirit go and sink these truths deep into our hearts this morning? May we have a deep assurance that Jesus is our eternal high priest. We are secure. We are at peace. In Jesus' name, amen.